This episode's guest is Tim Karen. Tim is the head coach at Allegiant. Tim's last stop before Allegiant was as the head strength and conditioning coach for football at Army West Point. He served in that role for three seasons, the final of which Army defeated Navy for the first time in 15 years. Prior to that, Tim was an associate strength and conditioning coach at USC, where he was in charge of swimming and diving and assisted with football. He was directly in charge of nutrition, return to play, and the football's internship program. On this episode, Tim and I discussed Tim's background, Tim's influences. I asked Tim about his training system, why Tim decided to write his book, Strength Deficit, and if Tim could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would he invite and why? Guys, this is a great episode with Tim, and I hope you really enjoy it. Tim, thanks so much for making time. I really do appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this because I know very little about you. So uh, we'll start off with the, the usual first question. Tell us about who you are. So background, uh, my 18th year working in strength conditioning. Started off as a high school strength conditioning coach. Uh, probably similar to a lot of people's path. Like I wanted to teach high school math. Uh, so I got my first degree in math, which I don't know if it's everyone's path, but either way, um, did that absolutely despised i think i just grew to hate high school kids in general um i just knew right away i didn't want to do this and i don't know why i pursue a degree trying to teach them but i thought the um the way i could offset that was coaching um primarily american football and then you know led in, led into the weight room probably because no one else wanted to do it um and i had the i guess the most interest in it so i just started doing that kind of got the bug from that so you know after i finished my math degree i didn't want to like go through with becoming a teacher because I felt like you just see your destiny in front of you and like the next 45 years are are foretold and I already despise and hate kids at this point so I was like I'm gonna go back for an exercise science degree if anything else just all fails I'll know, learn how to work out a little bit better myself um which you know started the next step of like I mean this is early 2000 so not a lot a whole lot of perception of like there's actually a vocation from this um other than maybe like at the time you know, I went to a school called Westfield State College which they push a lot of people to cardiac rehab and corporate wellness. So that was where a majority of your time felt like we spent, um, which is another like watching paint dry type of experience. So um, other than building bulletin boards and learning group exercise, like aerobic fitness and step and things like that, that was the extent of my undergrad learning, uh, which led into uh, started interning, you know, and um, I think that was the process where the evolution of becoming a strength conditioning or performance coach really started to unfold. So interned forever uh, there was a point where i felt like i was the most qualified intern in all of america um i interned at harvard georgia tech old miss uh, velocity sports performance you talk about like the the old school ten thousand hour rule of like i probably put in ten thousand hours of free work uh with really nothing to show for it um, but the thing is like this is early on in the industry where there probably wasn't a lot of jobs to be had let alone there was probably an overwhelming amount of short bald headed white guys who were trying to do it in that time period anyway, much like always. So fighting upstream in terms of a not very big job market, as well as probably being like everyone else that's trying to apply for these jobs, uh, which I wasn't deterred. Uh, I was really motivated and inspired by it. And again, I had some really amazing mentors between Harvard and uh, Tim Mullen, Craig Fitzgerald, Mark Kilgallen, and then going into Georgia Tech, Eric Siano, Neil Paduzzi. Um, and then going to Old Miss, Aaron Osmus, Noel Durfee, some other really good guys. And, you know, I think that process of, all right, these guys were pros and these guys were really honest and they told you directly, like, 
that's not good, man. You could, you are, you have to be better if you want to get a job in this and, and actually taking that to heart and trying to improve, um, which you know, led into, uh, I got a graduate assistant position at Springfield college. So I was there from 2005, 2006. And then I uh, actually was fortunate enough to get a job at Georgia tech. So I worked there for four years, working football and women's basketball, and then ended up going to university of Southern California, worked there for four years. I had swimming and diving for two and then uh, top assistant with football. And then actually got the head strength conditioning job at army West point for three years. And, uh, kind of accomplished my goal of reaching head strength conditioning coach. I guess when you start off, like that's like your Zenith of whatever that is of like, once I get that, then what, um, which is a scary feeling of getting to the proverbial mountaintop, that burnout effect of not feeling fulfilled and sacrificing so much stuff in your life to get to that point, getting that first job, putting all the weddings and all the other things in your life that you said, can't make it, got this thing I got to do. And then actually reaching some sort of goal or milestone and, and then going kind of unhappy, I'm unfulfilled and, and then either trying to reconcile that or looking for the next opportunity or challenge, and which I did. You know, I kind of went into private strength conditioning. And now I opened up a gym with a couple former athletes of mine. Where we're trying to recreate that college experience for, for everybody. Um, so that's the mantra is where do athletes go when they're done training or playing. Um, and then trying to replicate that model of high quality strength conditioning for, for everybody. Um, and going through the process of how I train elite level athlete for all gen pop. And we've been running this business now for five years. We have two and a third gym coming up here in the fall, which, you know, proof of concept and scale, uh, that's definitely big on my mind now. Um, scaling out staff, scaling out systems, uh, which I think that's the part where I was really missing. It was getting rid of the, the stuff that wasn't fulfilling or happy, or maybe happy. Like you find when you're actually working in the team setting, practices are just mundane and then that you just there's no point in me being here I don't enjoy this you're just basically doing busy work like injured workouts or or just trying not to get yelled at um game day it's again you know just getting out of the way and doing stuff that's like this should be the reward but it's actually kind of like a it's kind of in some ways like a distraction or like a punishment in a lot of ways I'm like I just don't want to be here um when I felt like that I'm like all right now I'm ready on for the next thing and just I stripped away the stuff I didn't want to do you know the bureaucracy the politics the the stuff that was not training related, like pretty myopic and focused and that I don't really like to do anything outside the purview of strength conditioning. I just don't find enjoyment from it. So going to games, uh, like team events, things like that, like just, eh, wasn't that like thrilling for me. And now it's just good or bad. It's all training and it's all trying to improve your training. It's all trying to improve your systems around training where you're the show and all decisions kind of fall on you. And that pressure of being a, a small business owner or business owner in general I think that's what I ended up wanting to covet. I feel like that was the thing I was missing. Um, so we're running that for five years. And then, uh, and then the next part is like, you know, the, the healthy, the healthy amount of people that it resonated with from a strength conditioning coach of taking your fate or your, your, your future in your own hands of I'm betting on myself. Um, and we're having the, the parents of success, uh, but gets a lot of strength conditioning coaches acquiring or inquiring about it which to be honest is net zero for me. I don't really get a whole lot out of strength conditioning coaches saying, Hey, how do you run your business? Or, Hey, can you give me some insight on this? So what I did off of that was instead of kind of bitching about it, I just said, let's, let's look at this from a context of how do I develop some sort of system to training and educating coaches outside of the purview of my private business, which spawned uh, this website I created called performance health podcast. And uh, just essentially trying to, pump everyone over there. So I kind of have this house divided now where if anyone has an interest in what I'm doing, um, it's not bleeding over and distracting from what I'm doing within my actual business, which is focused on gen pop. But on the other end, it goes into this dynamic of 
I don't want to be, I think where I came from. That's my tribe. That's the people I associate with. But if I spend all my time with them, it takes away from the members that are paying me, the coaches that I'm employing, uh, the, the business and the systems that I'm doing. So I created this whole thought process off of, let's try to silo this off and create two separate domains. And I'm going to commit my time and energy here in this period of the day. And I'm going to commit my time and energy in this period of the day. And just trying to create two separate things. And you know, as this is building out, I still have this as my primary focal point from my day-to-day business. But this is kind of a nice way to like divert people in that direction and not trying to be directly rude or um, saying, I just don't got time to be, to give you any, or any of my emotional or cognitive energy. So develop that. And that's been going for about a year and a half now, which, you know, as you know, as a podcaster and content creator is, I don't know if um, when you sign up for coaching and people are showing interest in what you got to say is something that you you realize how emotionally draining it is. Um, you're putting yourself out there to the world. And, you know, if you suck at copy, if you suck at like just interviewing people or just not creating cool and interesting content, like it doesn't get a buzz, but you think you're a big deal until like people tell you directly, like, it's not that good. We don't like it that much because we're not buying it versus on the other end in my actual private business where I'm running day to day, like coaching and training, you know, early on, they didn't give a crap if I was a head strength coach at the division one level. Like, what are you going to do for me? And how is that going to help me? Like, that's not relevant. We've built that now. And, and uh, getting a partner or getting partners that, you know, really promote and sell your product for you and really accentuate that aspect of the business that you're not really strong in. You know, that's been a process of learning and growth as well. So that's where I'm at, man. I'm, you know, failed high school teacher, uh, crappy high school teacher into strength conditioning coach and probably got into it for selfish reasons for, I wanted to learn how to train myself and get better at it. And then by extension, it flipped and inverted to now training others. Great stuff. Great stuff. I mean, there's a lot in there that we could have a whole podcast on itself, but um, just before we move on to talking about your kind of training systems, which, which seems to be a a great topic for you to discuss right now, because you've just touched on the fact that you're having to scale a lot of models within your business. But before we get there, you touched on this too in your answer about your background, but maybe just you can dive into it a little deeper here is your influences, Tim. So who would you say have been the biggest influences on you? And I, I always word this as a as a double-sided question, not only professionally, but personally too. And I understand that certain individuals can act as both a professional and personal influence, but who have been the biggest influences on you so far in your life? So, I mean, before all of this, I grew up, pretty much in a gold's gym, you know, where, you know, around high school training, I would do my own bodybuilding as program, uh, where you know, basically you're just going there around the clock. And my, my whole mantra was in high school was training. Um, I mean, I was training before and after school training with the team, still doing my own stuff. And I would get part-time jobs to earn enough money to buy a supplement or gym memberships. And like, I think that's where it's like, when you're proverbial is searching for like meaning and purpose in life, you're like, you're just trying to recreate that thing that you were so driven for in high school for whatever reason. I, I, I don't know if I was a better athlete. I mean, I probably regressed through high school in a lot of ways because I was so focused on bodybuilding, but you know, the, the dynamic of like, I just felt right and I felt comfortable there. So when I found that first internship, uh, specifically at Velocity and in Harvard, and you found the place that you felt right at. So I think it was a very influential part of my life where I was going to be very open to feedback. Um, and when you get that first internship and you're around people who work in college transpositioning, it's, it's a really transformative experience. They're going to be brutally honest. Um, it's not hazing. It's not like this, 
knock you down and make you love you towards the end. It's just, Hey, like this is a cutthroat industry. And if you don't got the guts or the stuff to do it, like we're going to tell you directly, because it's not within our time and interest to help kind of like prod you along and hold your hand through this process. It's either you can or you can't. And I think I resonated with that. Like, I don't think I like really like was super geeked up when I was an athlete about hard coaching, like the Bobby Knight type of coaching. Like I probably did not do well with authority figures, but I did really do well with authority figures and triumph conditioning because my actual, uh, my desires or my incentives were really aligned with that. And the more honest and straightforward someone could be and direct, I found that moment in my life was really important. So the people I worked with, and I mentioned them already, but you know, Craig Fitzgerald, Tim Mullen, um, Mark Kilgallen, those guys at Harvard. If, at, I remember each step of the way, like people were just brutally honest to a point where it's like, if you don't have develop either thick skin or a certain grit about you, like you're just going to pack it in. And then I remember going to Georgia Tech thinking I'm a big deal because um, you're working pretty much from 5 a.m. to 8.30 p.m. every day, just going through with teams and get to Georgia Tech. And the first day you're there, are both, you know, Neil Paduzzi and Eric Siano, like, man, you're not very good. We thought you'd be better. Um, and then what do you do? Right. <laughs> you know? Um, and then going to the next level of going to Old Miss and Aaron Osmus and Noel Durfee and everyone there, like, man, we just thought you'd be better with all the experience you got. Like, what, what is going, how do you handle that? Right. And I don't think it was like them just trying to knock me down or humble me. I think it's just at that point, I wasn't very good. And how do you respond to that? And I think the thing I could control was always a read more. So other outside influences, obviously like Mike Boyle and Charles Poliquin, which you talked about, but you know, those guys are, they're just, they're, they're not real, right? They're just books or words. And they're, they're just, they might as well be in a whole, a whole nother universe where the people that are seeing you on a day-to-day basis are giving you honest and direct feedback. So on that level of like, you know, you have Craig Fitzgerald saying, Hey, like, your real worth of a coach is what you can do in that hour that athlete is you're with that athlete to Eric Siano. It's like, Hey, I want you to be dialed in for this entire session to Aaron Osman. It's like, even to the point of like, Hey, as athletes are coming in, I want you to engage with them and be energetic. And like, you're just not there, you know, like, you know, a lot, but you don't know how to do it. And like that back and forth between those two, um, you know, and going into these amazing resources from Boyle and, and Paula Quinn and, and great cook and just all these, amazing minds out there that you can pull from and not judging the people that you're working with because they're not as interested in it because their value is telling you how to do the job they want you to do better. But then these other folks out there are telling you ways to do it better. And the best line I got from Eric Siano on my first day of an internship, he's like, I know you like to read. I know you're all into this strength conditioning education, but what I want you to do is get a notepad. And when you see something you don't like, write it down. And when you're in charge, remember not to do it. And then from there, I was like, all right, like that's the clear expectations. Here's what I want you to do. If you can't, I'll get someone who will, but if you can, you'll have a lot more opportunities here. And then I got a job opportunity with pretty much every one of those guys, you know? So that process of like being a value from knowing more, but also to being a value from being able to execute my job responsibilities. Like it's just, those are the influences, man. Like the, they'll be able to take that feedback directly and, and not take it personally. Um, cause they just want you to do a job, but then also to taking the impetus and the, and the motivation to learn, because you know, what the version of yourself right now is incomplete. And I'm going to expose myself to as much great information out there from amazing minds out there as possible. You know, then that's, that's the influence list. Yeah. Great stuff. 
Okay, so Tim, moving on then to your sort of training, I'm always a bit, I always have to word this. So, you know, people have this thing with training philosophy and then training principles and people get confused. Like I've heard people say, I don't have philosophies. That's for philosophers, I have principles. But that's because a philosophy and principles are two completely different things. A philosophy is your why and the principles is pretty much your how. Um, so if I was just asking about your training system, how does that look? So if you want to, if you have a training philosophy, you can get into that. And then what does your training, how, how does that philosophy look when it's put to practice your, your training principles? Yeah. Uh, so again, uh, talking about now, like I'm thinking about scale and I'm thinking about, we start at the end, right? So our goal is a, a gym business is to have 50 50 high quality strength training gyms across the country uh, and maybe not international, right? So what would it look like if I had 50X what I have right now? You know, so what does that mean? What's gonna be hopefully universally true across all 50 gyms and goal of having 200 members per gym, so 10,000 people. So it, it, the generic mission statement or philosophy statement we have is doing compound or total body training in a group setting with compound multi-joint movements with first principles and principles of training always, right? So that's the bare minimum. And what, anytime you get a suggestion for one of my staffs, okay, should we do this? Like, does it fit within that, that system or that, that statement? And it's pretty broad, right? Uh, which, you know, it's intentionally so, so we're not limited, but the other thought, and I'm sorry, triplanar movement is there as well, like done in all three planes of motion. But the thought process is like, I don't want to be, I don't want to create a mission statement that's limiting. And I don't want to create a system that is is reductionist or like just oh, i'm all only going to do this thing right the only thing that we have is a hammer so everything better be a nail type of syndrome so the area that i wanted to be is really cognizant of is i don't know what's going to happen a year from now or five years from now and the evolution in the past 15 years is for me and i think the whole entire industry has been tremendous right but as you mentioned my principles are still going to be true and you know, hopefully principles of physics or first principles will be still be true. Like um, gravity is always going to exist in some way, form or another and thermodynamics and the whole thing. Now a whole list of that, but you know, as a whole is, you know, if we kind of keep this, keep this rubric and I'll be the first to admit, uh, and it's been fun to kind of like get some back and forth with our staff. And I think the benefit of testing is really, really like questions or challenges that that philosophy. So I put in there compound multi-joint movements. No, well, what if someone has some sort of limitation from, we have countless people who are above 50 who have ortho, ortho issues. Like, so their ortho, ortho issues, like they have arthritis or their degenerative knee disc or knee, knee issues, or they just don't do the things that 20 year olds can do in a college setting. So sometimes compound multi-joint movements aren't the only way to do the job. The only reason why I put that in there is because one of the big systemic problems I see with commercial gen pop fitness is there's a high frequency, high burnout effect. And one of the metrics that we really leaned in on early is that the retention for most group-based fitness options is gold standard 20% month over month. That is awful. That is so bad. But it just leads into this, this messaging of go every day, do excessively glycolytic work, with no rhyme or reason in terms of biomechanics or physiology until you break. And then do the same thing in a different place, in a different uh, business over and over again, which the net is what? Like as a, 
as a, a country in America right now, we are fatter and dumber than we've ever been in our history. And we have more money vested into health and fitness than we've ever had in the entire history of our species. So we should be netting more. And I think it just comes down to setting clear boundaries off of you're 40 years old, you have two kids, you're working 60 hours a week. You probably shouldn't intentionally stress your system anaerobically more than three times a week, to be completely frank. But the messaging comes into this other idea of like, well, since there's no principles and you aren't progressively overloading or having any progressions or screening people, that you just got to do something that's attention grabbing or what I call it, like, plead, like playing on your insecurities of like, I'm sedentary, I'm out of shape. I don't like the way I look and feel. So you do this like very hard, challenging glycolytic workout that gets your attention immediately, but doesn't have any sustainability to it. But it reminds you how out of shape and, and how you don't like the way you look and feel in a very compelling and interesting way. You know, that that's the battle. And it's setting clear boundaries off of you simply can't progress from that. And so when I created an admission statement, it's like, will this be true with 50,000 people coming in three times a week? Yeah, because a lot of these compound multi-joint movements with the ability to modify or regress or, or lateralize still will have weight in terms of improving that. Um, and, and as we go through this, we'll track counter movement jump on a force plate. We'll do a Nord board and we'll do all these tests with Gen Pops to substantiate that mission statement. And what we see are things that are compelling, right? And we always joke about like a metric on our force plate would be reactive strength index, right? I mean, we're spending more time in the plate versus less time in the air if it's low, less time in the plate, more time in the air if it's high, right? Which for a gen pop person who's 40 year old, 40 year old person training three days a week, like what does that matter? Well, most injuries occur from some sort of decelerated problem, right? I picked up my kid or I'm running or playing soccer. Like how many of the stuff that we have happen just naturally circumstance walking around living your normal life is from not being able to decelerate effectively enough. So my program should at least have something in there to improve that quality, to have more reactive strength. And if I don't have that, then I need to evaluate what I'm not doing or how I'm doing it more effectively. But when I'm thinking about that, the best way to do that with three days a week is probably compound multi-joint movements with the principles of training and physics included in there and all three planes of motion. But the other one from a Nordic hamstring curl assessment, or we do grip strength as well, is looking at this from the perspective of I'm doing hinge patterns and squat patterns and I'm loading them up, right? If you come into our weight room, we have barbells, dumbbells, kettlebells, you know, some of the highest quality equipment you get. But when you see is when we do a Nordic hamstring curl from the ability to produce Newton's of force, and I see a 40 year old male is training three times a week, really diligent about that and putting under 300 Newton's of force or having a massive asymmetry from left to right, that's screaming where I don't have enough progression or enough progressive overload or enough means of creating tension in something like a knee dominant posterior chain movement, right? So if I have guys who can't do pull-ups, if I got guys who can't break 300 newtons of force, and all I'm doing is hinging and squatting and pressing and pulling, you know, well, where do I, am I coming up short? Is that something that I need to be more conscious of? So the investment is, okay, well, what are my mechanisms to do knee dominant posterior chain exercises? Okay, I got slides, I got, I got fizzy balls, I got leg curls, or I got foam rolls, and for which you can do leg curls off of that. Um, maybe we do some hip bridging, but the net is what? I'm not making progress there, but the goal is to keep people training as long as they can and getting good results. But if I'm coming up short in that area and structurally balance wise, we have a lot of emphasis on the anterior part, but not on the posterior part of the, of the leg, specifically distally. Well, I need to figure out that, which 
maybe I need to get a prone leg curl in there or some sort of seated leg curl option, which automatically starts to question that compound multi-joint movement. You know, now I'm doing open kinetic chain exercise. But I think that process of, I know what I know, and I'm, I think this is really going to be able to scale out to 50,000 people until I know otherwise. You know, so that's, you know, it's kind of like the constitution. It's a malleable, growing, living document that we can build out over time. And then the next part is, you know, are we keeping people around? Which, you know, the, the other part of our mission statement, and this is what we talk about internally, is like our best means to helping someone is to keep them coming and keep getting great results. And a large part of that is making sure they're not getting hurt, right? So we'll go through objectives and key, re and key results of, all right, well, our objective is to get them coming in consistently three times a week for 52 weeks a year. If we can average 150 sessions a year for all of our clients, we're probably going to get to some sort of outcome, whether it's improving body comp or strength or performance. And we're probably, it's probably meaning that we're keeping them safe and healthy. And it's interesting, right? That means that they keep coming in. They like, they like training, training drive still high, motivation still high, and they're not getting hurt. So kind of by default, directly saying we're going to help them towards their goal. But the other part means that we're doing our job really well. And other things we can track within that between wellness and RP, um, just general feedback and kind of getting that that aspect of a collaborative experience of what can we do to improve this, making some wholesale, wholesale decisions to where are our gaps in our programming and trying to figure out ways to fill that gap from knowing more and learning more. Um, and then looking at the other side of it is, you know, the, the part that I really lean in on is at a certain point, the coaches that are going through this on a daily basis are the ones that are doing the heavy lifting, you know, and I still coach and I still get out there and coach quite a bit. And when I'm doing something and it's set up is really invasive, right? You know, that day when you're an intern and you had this most elaborate setup that you could possibly imagine, I can want you to take these 40 hurdles and carry them 200 yards and set up them on the football field. So the guys can do hurdle mobility over there. And you're thinking in your head, like, this is so inefficient. This is just so laborsome. This is not really the best way to do this. And thinking about that process for my coaches and thinking about the burnout effect for them. And if they're walking in the work scrambling, to have this elaborate setup just because I had to program something that was just not really that practical, you know, having that experience as well and having a place for our coaches to feel like they value what they're doing. They know what they do matters as well as they realize there's a certain limit to what is actual acceptable from a workplace um, and getting that effect too. So back to the original statement, compound multi-joint movements through all planes, planes of motion, using first principles and then principles of training always. But the other part is just being realistic with that's just the start. You know, that's just what I thought would be five years ago. And now as I start to expand out, like learn more, grow more change, um, you know, invest in other things, you know, looking at the gaps in our coaches of like, where can we improve upon their knowledge and where can we improve upon the experience, uh, giving feedback and direction and just trying to be this, this malleable ecosystem that can grow and change. Cause if you read anything from like, you know, in the sit into labs, anti-fragile or, you know, good to great or anything, right? It's just this thought process of people are screaming at what you should do and how you could do what you do better. You just got to listen and you got to be willing to change and grow with that because, you know, mission statements all well and good until it starts to not manifest into getting us to that outcome. And I got to grow and change with that. So I guess that's it. Do what works, but also to be willing to change and grow with whatever we know and whatever we see is not working. Great stuff, and he's actually, he just reminded me there. I need to read Anti Fragile. I actually have, I have, I'm, not, I'm, I've been reading some of the books lately, and that's actually one book that I must get to. Um, it's, it's an acquired taste. Taleb's amazing, but my goodness, um, it's a very, uh, 
I can read one book a year from him, you know, kind of like Navari of like, you got, it's very, I can go through it, plow through with it. And then you're just like, God dang, I couldn't do all five of his books right now. This is just so heavy. And he speaks in this, like, um, you have to figure out quickly because he speaks in these two um, kind of like good and evil, right? Like he's got his two, uh, his two voices in his head between Nero and fat Tony and Tim, right? Like fat Tony's the aggressive, sell everything, super aggressive. And then Nero's the, the cerebral, the quant, and like, you have to realize that that's him in his internal dialogue communicating to him, which is very interesting writing style. And I mean, my goodness, the guy can just, you talk about words in a book, but like you're reading this, like I'm so lost right now. Like I get to pause here and reflect, but yeah, it's, it's definitely something, definitely not for audible or book on tape. Cause you just get so lost in the weeds, especially if you're driving to work and kind of like out of body, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, of the books he has, uh, I think that was probably the best, in my opinion. That's good to know. All right, speaking of books, you wrote one. Yeah. <laughs> so the the strength deficit. So bring us through this whole process. I mean, uh, why did you decide to write the book, and what is it about? Flashback, my last year at Army. So in college football, we have what we call contract years, uh, meaning that we're on the third year of a, of a program, and if we don't win this year, we're out. So what we did was from year one, me and my staff of, we don't have the benefit of kind of doing what we've always done because we were really behind. Um, we were really bad uh, to be completely frank. We were undersized, we were slow and we were really weak. So perfect storm of bad at football. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily change the, the big things of like you know, culture and having a team that's really bought in and just, you know, stuff that honestly, when you're trying to do like, evaluate the structure of your program or the value of your program is like, you know, trying to create that. But the question I got asked in my interview of what, what would I do day one? My response was, well, what do you want them to be year three when we're coming up in this contract year? Like, what do you think is going to be the thing on year three that is going to be the program that we want? And he's like, oh, I want them tough, physical and trained. Like, okay. Then we're going to do everything in that process to re reverse engineer it from there. But from a physiological perspective, it was looking at of where are our biggest shortcomings, right? I just said we're slow, weak, and, and really uh, slow, weak, and really small, you know. So, figuring out ways to put on size because that matters, get ourselves faster because that matters, and then getting ourselves physically stronger, producing more force because that matters in a timely manner to get them to that part. And so, kind of like a quadrennial cycle, but also too of like incrementally building it out. And if you ever worked at an academy or work with military tactical athletes, like They'll run through a brick wall, but they'll run through it, any brick wall that basically is in front of them. It doesn't really matter. They're just going to go really hard. So the message was hard work and dedication is not the limiting factor here. Sometimes it is, but definitely not in an academy. So what we wanted to do was divert them in a direction that we actually thought was going to be net positive. And just going through of them, like the reason why you're not successful is because you play offensive line and you're 240 pounds. That's not going to get the job done when playing Oklahoma and Ohio State. Just not. It just won't. So if we do want to improve your ability, you've got to get bigger and you've got to get stronger. Versus our perimeter athletes was, well, we're not going to be able to get the job done if you can't, one, create any closing speed or break away from somebody or just create any separation altogether. So that was the first step is figuring out like if what we're doing isn't effective to changing these guys from a generic, like, you know, strength conditioning type of model, you know, then we needed to figure out better strategies. And that was the impetus on us was, you know, we, we needed to get outside the box. And 
going back to the influences, uh, in passing, I remember I was at a LACO summit in 2011. Charles Poliquin mentioned this thing called a strength deficit, where essentially he was talking about training track and field athletes of shot putters. You want to close the deficit or making a small deficit. And then 100 meter sprinters or triple jumpers, you want to increase the deficit or making them more eccentrically oriented. And then another couple of years later, went to Altus and Stu McMillan talked about you know, this idea of long to short, short to long from Charlie Francis, right? And how he would train a short to long person would be listening to what would be your preference from an exercise. So if you ask me, what would be your preference of like squat or, or deadlift? I would say squat, right? I'm five foot eight, 200 pounds, definitely a mesomorph. I am more of a push guy, you know, and then you go even further forward to looking at someone like Bill Hartman and talking about someone who's concentrically oriented, right? I'm better at pulling air in, right? I'm a wide type in terms of infrasternal angle. So all these things are building, right? And then from the other end, did you have this other person that likes to deadlift? Okay, they're more of a pulling oriented person or eccentric or more exhalation biased. So these things are just kind of like coming together at all different spots, right? You're like, man, these, this is, a, you know, the rule of threes. When you start to hear something in, in three times, it's probably something. So that's the process of like, like now let's start to think about how can we apply this in the team setting. Um, and thinking about that, like, well, if I would train a track and field athlete differently from a shot putter to a 100 meter sprinter, why wouldn't I do that from our inside or outside the box guys or our guys are front seven offensive defensive line, middle linebackers, fullbacks, tight ends, defensive ends versus our perimeter, right? Our defensive backs or wide receivers. Some of our slots or what we call a backs or running backs that kind of move more in the perimeter. Why wouldn't I train them more specifically to the task at hand? And then again, the other idea of looking at tracking, right? So the thing that was really, really like illuminating was our practice design where our offensive the defensive line we're really kind of going about half a mile during the course of our practice. But for our skill guys, our wide receivers and DBs, they were breaking six to seven miles in the practice. I'm not talking about any high intensity sprinting or any high speed change of direction, just mileage, right? So from an energy system perspective, you know, then we have to look at this from extremely different bioenergetic demands, right? The demands on someone running seven miles every single day, three to four days a week, is a lot different than running pretty much three miles a week. So all these things are converging. And so we started to look at it from, we're just gonna have to break these guys up apart, right? And the model was increase the deficit. So focusing on eccentric qualities, because this would be two things. One, we could work specifically more front side mechanics or working on the stuff in front, which I think in college football is such, I think it's getting better, right? I think what's due and everything Altus has done is like repopularizing wicket runs and you know this you know build up runs and all these stuff that, you know, you look back all the way to Lawrence Seagrave days in the early 2000s was starting to get introduced. And then it became so acceleration or backside focused that like, let's just only do short sprinting and sled pushes. And, and that's all we need. Right. Um, and then looking at it now of like, we got to work on this other half and we got to work on front side and we got to work on more efficiency because the bioenergetic demands of these guys are immense. Right. So if we don't work on some sort of movement economy or making them more efficient from a front side perspective, we found the guys from a best physiological preparedness with the best front side mechanics, whether it's using more passive properties of when they strike the ground, they're not using as much mechanical energy, which might mean more CNS impact, but still, right, they're, they're not burning as much ATP through the course of an actual step because they're just more reliant more on that series elastic component or the stretch reflex as opposed to creating this contraction. So that's one part. But the other part is our big guys definitively need to get bigger and stronger and then definitively need to be really good in closed spaces. So from a programming perspective, doing this like 
generic one size fits all program, which we're always programming to the lowest common denominator, meaning that our big guys probably can't do as much stuff outside and our skill guys probably can't do as much inside, you know, the weight room versus the fields work. We'd always program to the person that we thought wouldn't be good in that indoor outdoor. So we just said, screw it. Let's just start to divide and conquer here. And there's two big variables here that really worked out in our favor. One, obviously, if you give the guys the right direction, they're going to go through a brick wall. And then two, a really good staff. And I felt really good about my staff at Army West Point. Like we just, they were really, and they were thrilled about the opportunity to be able to be in charge of collectively a group of people on their own, right? I mean, who wouldn't want that as an associate or an assistant strength conditioning coach, right? So outside guys, we're with that one coach, inside guys with one coach. And as a head strength coach, like I had to put a lot of trust and, and honestly, faith in these coaches and athletes that they're all going to do a good job. I mean, to be honest, once the things you realize as you become like this more director role of like, you don't have trace faith and trust. And I just read work rules by um, a guy at Google, uh, Lazlo, like you should give as much autonomy that you feel uncomfortable as a manager within your employees. Like you should give them so much responsibility that you feel anxious and uncomfortable about it. Cause that means it's pushing the boundaries of, and you get more out of them and they work harder. And now it's theirs, right? Remember that first program you wrote with the team that you had on your own? Like, that was your deal. Like, you probably put way more time and energy in that than you would if you were just blindly following someone else's program. And eventually, it all fall through. Like, okay, well, here's a rubric. Like, I want to increase the deficit, so I want to focus on eccentric and maybe things like bounding or maybe things like maximal sprinting or frontside mechanic focus stuff. Maybe stuff that's more eccentrically oriented in the weight room, like weight release hooks or or complexes or more time under tension eccentrically will be in the weight room versus our inside the box of decreasing deficit, doing more concentrically overloaded stuff. So stuff with more acceleration focus, more contact time on the ground, more static stuff, more concentrically oriented stuff, like accommodating resistance, uh, maybe some pause work, some different things that make that take away that stretch reflex, but focus more on increasing that concentric demand. That's the goal. That's the goal here. Let's get creative. Let's start to think about stuff. So you have this group that's very capable of doing a really high level from the staff and the athlete perspective. And then you look at results. And one of the metrics that we really leaned in on was, can I look at a difference between eccentric versus concentric focus on a jump plate or a jump mat? And we had a bunch of jump mats. And we just looked at non-counter movement jump versus counter movement jump and what the ratio was. And we kind of decided arbitrarily that was going to be our standard, right? So we wanted everyone to move up and to the right on all factors, right? I wanted counter movement jump and non counter movement jump to move upwards both simultaneously. But we wanted that ratio between the two to change correspondingly to whatever that athlete's demand was. So if I have someone outside the box where I wanted to increase the deficit or increase that eccentric strength, I wanted to have a little bit higher ratio of counter movement jump to non counter movement jump, basically meaning they're just more adept at using a stretch shortening cycle. Versus in the other end, you go into this dynamic of, I want to improve concurrently or same time, this counter movement jump and non-counter movement jump, but I want to close the gap between that non-counter movement jump. So if I can get a 300 pound guy jumping 30 inches, but I can get him non-counter movement jump 27 inches, that's pretty good ratio, right? That means that guy can produce a lot of force from a static position versus that guy who's playing outside the box. If I can get him jumping 40 inches and his counter movement jumps, you know, 30, 35, somewhere in there, like, not as concerned, but that big number on the counter movement jumps there. You know, ideally, that's what it is. And it started leaning into this, like, let's see what we're doing and what happens, relatively speaking. So, hey, let's do weight release hooks for this training block and see in the pre and post and the intervention, right? Did we increase the deficit or decrease it? 
right? Ideally, we start to improve that over time. And now as I flash forward and did this like retroactively, like, wow, that really worked, right? We changed it. We went from a program in 2015 that quite frankly was bad. We lost to two FCS programs and we're in a really bad spot to 2016. We beat Navy for the first time in 15 years and we're able to go to a bowl game and win the bowl game. Like the thing that is so important that we really had to look back on is what was our relative impact? And then I hate when coaches say like strength conditioning doesn't impact wins and losses. Well, some degree, like there's a small fraction of that, like you're making impact, but at army West point, our relative impact was greater than anywhere else that was going to work. So if that was the opportunity to actually have an impact on wins and losses, that would be the place to do it. So the, the ability to innovate or the desire to innovate, do something new and honestly creative and, hopefully going to push the needle performance. That was the thought process. Like if we're going to ever think what we would do is value, this is the opportunity to do it. And I think we're all motivated and inspired by that. That was the place to do it. And it showed, right. And I could think about so many conversations, right. With so many coaches of like, yeah, Hey, don't, don't rock the boat. Don't risk this. And like, and I'm thinking this idea of like, man, I'm at the roulette table. There's a magnet under 32. I'm not putting any chips down on any of the numbers like i know that that's a loaded deck like the the guy running the table just winked at me going there's a magnet here don't waste your chips anywhere else i'm not i'm just trying to win big and i figured that out and i was looking at this from the context of increasing the deficit translated to this because i saw the performance manifest you know our guys are giving me feedback they're playing they're doing player-led practice twice a week all year like man i feel great i feel amazing like and then we look at it from an injury profile perspective like how many soft tissue injuries do we get just because they're not doing the things they're doing in practice from a bioenergetic or biomechanical standpoint where you, know, you look at the things that we don't do in college transition, short-sighted games being one of them, right? Which research is tremendous in terms of improving VO2 max by just playing these short-sighted games or just tag, right? Something like that. But how hard is that to do with 300 pound guys in a closed space doing that safely? There is a dynamic there that you probably should be really careful with risk reward. Why so many coaches are so conservative, especially working with athletes that have a chance to make millions of dollars. But with skilled guys, 180 pound guys are really good with body control and space and progressing of doing these like more open agility drills, which you're super conservative with not wanting to do that with a 300 pound guy and getting that skilled guy over there, which is great image on the last part of our summer, like final phase of the summer, we do strongman conditioning with our big guys inside the box guys and we do short-sighted games or reactionary based drills with their skill guys. So it looked like top gun versus top gun volleyball scene versus uh, just a bloodbath over there. And the joke had, with the inside the box doing strongman stuff was like, wow, that really escalated quickly versus like these guys over there just laughing, having a great time spraying each other with water. Just, it looked like bizarro world, but the idea is we're doing stuff from what they need in their position. Right. So they're doing a lot of reactionary stuff. They're doing a lot of overcoming stuff based off their position stuff. So, getting them comfortable with that and doing that led to less injuries and better performance and it manifested. So I mean, I'm, I'm done with army. Decided to go through that. I'm thinking back retroactively, like, damn, that was really, really good. I felt like we were way ahead of the curve. I feel like we actually have proof of concept. I just started writing about it to be honest. And it just materialized, materialized. And to be completely frank, lockdown hit and who hell knew what was going to happen, right? Like there was a legitimate fear, you know, with a family that I wasn't going to be able to provide a source of income if my gym went out of business. I could control writing, right? So I was like, maybe this is just a, a debrief or a reflective piece for me just to sit with and just started going. A couple hundred pages later, um, organizing it and just 
proofing it, which, you know, if you ever write your own stuff, it's the, the proofing of it. That's probably the most emotionally taxing. Um, and getting people like, I don't, this doesn't make any sense. You got to rewrite this. That process really hard and going through that, but turned out to be a book. And now the process of creating a book and, you know, getting it published and getting it out there to the world. Like now the other part, which is definitely not the less, it was less glamorous, but definitely necessary. Like there's no point in writing something and no one reading it. So um, that was the whole origin and thesis behind it. And now it's um, the process of uh, survival. And then it turned into, we made it. And now I'm on the other end with a published book and figuring out how to get it out to the masses. That's a great story. And just in terms of availability, where can, where can people look? To, is, it, is it on just the usual, um, usual outlets? Like, can you get it on Amazon? Is there a website? Can we use this as like a little uh, springboard to any future writers out there? Because I think this is, um, I was clueless, to be honest, and I still feel like I am clueless. So, um, and I actually asked Ant and uh, Coach Boyle on uh, strengthcoach.com, and they were really helpful. Um, reached out to um, Lena Draper and just, it's not easy. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to publish I and mean, pretty much anyone could do it, but um, it's not the easiest process. So um, my process was finish the book and see what happens, uh, probably not the best way to go. You know, if you have a really good platform, a publisher will probably ask you to write a book and they'll help you along the process. I didn't go about that. I don't have a really big platform, big following. So it's kind of like just shot in the dark. Uh, so going through a bunch of people and you can go through various sites like Upwork or things like that, or just contact publishers. And a lot of times they're very niche specific, like romance novels or, or uh, doctors writing a book on like health and nutrition, things like that. But, you know, as a whole, uh, you're pretty much just learning how to sell yourself and going through the process of like, you know, the people that do listen to me and like me really, really value what I have to say. And you have to convince the publisher out there that that's good. So we've met a couple of publishers and, uh, and, you know, first book, the first line they told me was no one makes money. They only lose money on their first books. And my response was like, so wait, does mean I actually got to write two of these to make money on it. Uh, they're like, yeah, unfortunately, yes, which I'm sure everyone who's written a book can probably attest to. So there's a lot of like belief in yourself. So you got to put down a lot of money in order to make this thing work, right? So a lot of out money on myself in terms of paying publishers, paying editors, uh, paying people to proof it, just because if it's a crap product and you're not experienced with writing or copy, you know, you, even the best authors in the world have teams working with them to kind of make this thing look presentable slash like, actually readable and getting feedback galore and this be not it's like someone trying to go into strength conditioning without any formal experience like right they're going to get chewed apart by other people with experience and knowledge so now i'm in this domain of like this copy sucks this doesn't really make sense this doesn't flow um this uh, walk me through this thought process of ordering it this way and then printing it so you're thinking about writing a book you know I probably, whatever. I mean, I, starting a business, same thing. I knew nothing about it and I did it, right? And you just figure it out and you have to learn by default. But if you're doing it, do it. You know, like start a business, write a book, burn the bridges, go all in. You know, like only look forward. Like if you have nothing to, if you have everything to lose, you're probably going to push through to the end. And that would be it. Like writing a book with nothing really like skin in the game. If you got a full-time gig with, with salary and benefits, your probably motivation to do it won't be there. So you know, if you're doing anything, do it big and go for it. So a couple, probably $15,000 in the hole um, on this book. And yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all in with editor, editor production, like the whole thing and then printing, right? You got to pay for each copy yourself. 
which goes into now looking at it from a pre-order. So now is all a matter of trying to mitigate the losses. So long ramble on, I have a pre-order available, which uh, is through my website, phpodcast.com, go backslash shop, uh, where you can get a copy of the book. And I'm trying to promote it from actually giving the programs I did at Army and a PDF to everyone who pre-orders it. So if that's any enter- any value to you, um, you know, right there in itself. Um, getting as many of those pre-orders sold to kind of cut into that break-even point as much as possible. And then going to the next order of maybe the next book will actually be profitable because I'll have proof of concept and people actually told me directly they like what I have to do. And if they don't, then okay, back to the drawing board. But um, uh, th- that's the process now is we have a pre-order available on phpodcast.com, which we have a bunch of books printed and uh, we'll get that shipped out to everyone and free gift of all the programs associated with it. And then, uh, and I'll sign it and whatever you want. If you think I, my autograph is cool, I'll put that in there. But um, after that, once I get through the pre-orders, they'll be available on Amazon, uh, which it will be this next level of, I can go pre-order, which is banking, betting on yourself, which I did. I'm into um, Amazon. You can actually do print to order, which pretty much zero margins. You're basically buying it at cost. And you know, that's just more of a matter of like, you're going through the Amazon ecosystem. But um, if anyone has interest in writing, uh, I don't know if I have really sound advice other than learning from the mistakes I made, but if you're going to do it, do it big and go all in. That's what, that's what I've been doing with my business and, uh, and the writing. So uh, pre-order there and then Amazon here probably in the fall. Um, and then I think it'll be available for Kindle as well. Sweet. Grace. And it's not, I'll put everything that you just mentioned there in the show notes. So for anyone who's listening to this, just go over to the show notes and, and everything that Tim just mentioned there will be there. That's some really valuable information for any future um, or aspiring authors that are that are listening. So Tim, I, I got to wrap up here, but there's so much more. I, I I'd love to uh, I'd love to delve in with like get into d- deep a deeper conversation with you, uh, and um, it'll definitely be a, a part two. But before you go, I will ask you one more question. Um, just before our time runs out here, if you could, if you've, I'm pretty sure you've listened to some of my podcasts, but if you could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who would you bring and why? Yeah, I was hoping you asked me this one. And I've, been, <laughs> I've been like, yeah, I don't, do you ever listen to how I built this with Guy I, Ross? I have, but only selected episodes. Yeah. So I think you go through phases when he always asked the question, was it luck or hard work? And you always go through phases in your life. Like screw that was hard work. Um, and think about this question a lot too. Um, and I, I, I kind of, I feel like, um, I'm a kindred spirit and you know, look at, I, I like what you have to say about reading history. Cause I think it makes you more well-rounded. So it automatically gravitates to people, great people of history. But to be honest, like, I don't know if I would want to sit down with Isaac Newton or Abraham Lincoln or anyone that like, I just, I don't think I would have much of a conversation with them. Like, I don't think it would be that interesting. I think it would be forced and I find myself not good in social situations. So I think the answer to this, and I think this is where I'm at right now is just my family, to be honest. Um, Cause I feel like that is authentically what I would be most comfortable with. I don't want to say I'm an introvert. I work in a very extroverted profession, but I find myself, if I don't really know you, it's not that fun or that interesting or that, appreciable and like and i've been around elite level athletes and high level like people i'm like god man like i just feel very uncomfortable right now like i don't feel like i'm very happy about this so if i'm eating or if i'm doing anything really enjoyable you know i can read about you and i can read about the the good and the bad from you and i I think that's for me good but if i had to like sit down with someone 
you know, family, like my wife, my two kids, my father, um, some of my best friends, like that would be the answer. And I know that's not the sexiest answer in the world, but you know, honestly, I feel like that's the truth. Um, cause, uh, I look at like the great people of history, when you really dive into them, they're all flawed, you know, Charles Paul Quinn to, to uh, Charles Darwin, to Isaac Newton, like, you know, I like just read Isaac Newton's biography and like the, the famous line, I can see further because I'm standing on the shoulder of the giants apparently was a dig at um, Hook's height. Like, it, like it helped. I mean, granted, it's amazing, like show like we're all the same. We're all petty, regardless if you're a genius or not. But like, you know, like, I mean, that dynamic of like, once you actually never meet your heroes, because we're all fallible, like, you know, like, just because they have extreme expertise in one thing doesn't make it going to be something that's going to be really valuable for you as a whole. So, um, you know, family, friends, uh, people that I genuinely enjoy spending time with or like spending time with me or like me in the first place, probably them, to be completely frank. Great stuff. Listen, I much prefer an honest answer than, you know, you trying to, to make up a to make up five guests just to like appease me or the audience and i've, I've had a number of guests who, who who've often said that close families who they would um who they invite to fa- who who they would invite to a dinner if they had to but uh me personally lincoln is definitely one of my five it's funny i'm just actually reading a bit there on um what's my, my latest book is uh the american caesars by nigel hamilton talks about like the 12 presidents from world war ii onward so it goes from fdr up to bush the set bush jr so uh, I always love reading about um, American presidential history. But anyway, so Zoom is telling me here to get the hell off or else pay a subscription. Yes, listeners, I only have the basic one. It's only because I release one podcast a month. But uh, Tim, listen, I'm going to say goodbye to you quickly offline. But for everyone listening, until next time, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.